Hi folks, this is Grounded, stories of refugee resettlement in Vermont. I'm your host, Tilden Reamer-Leach. In this episode, you'll hear stories like... And we're uh, pushing for, you know, kind of uh, recognizing differences in people, which... For me, there are none, because we're all human beings, you know. Do I care what color you are? I don't care. You're a human being. In the previous episode, we got a glimpse of some of the global migration trends and heard stories about the process people go through of fleeing their homes and arriving in the country of first asylum. Today, we want to focus on the steps that follow for a refugee who is trying to make their way to the U.S. for resettlement. Now, keep in mind that many refugees would actually rather return home than resettle in the U.S. or any other third country, for that matter. Just because somebody is a refugee doesn't mean that they necessarily want to go to a third country. Most refugees want to go home. They want the conditions to get better so that they can rebuild their lives and livelihoods. Today, we are in the worst migration crisis, people used to say, since the Second World War, but really it's in the history of the modern world. That was Pablo Bose. He is a geography professor at UVM, and he is the advisor for my thesis research. Much of his own research on refugee resettlement history and trends in the U.S. will be highlighted in this episode. Okay, folks, now I am going to try and break down the steps of how a refugee would end up in Vermont. Now, when I first started doing this research, getting my head around all of this was a real challenge, so I'll try to keep it relatively simple. If you would like a visual timeline, I know for me that kind of helps. Make sure to check out the New York Times article Refugees entering the U.S. already face a rigorous vetting process by Young Park and Larry Buchanan. You can find it on their website. So, here are the steps. If you fled your country of origin, you travel to a country of first asylum. In that new country, you would register with the United Nations High Commissioner, or UNHCR, and you would be interviewed to determine if you qualify for refugee status. Then, if the UN grants you refugee status, they would refer you to a country of resettlement. This could be the US or a number of other countries. And keep in mind that only 1% of refugees worldwide get through this stage. Many people spend over a decade waiting in refugee camps in their country of first asylum. If you are referred to the U.S., for example, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and State Department contractors take over your application. This process is in itself an 11-step process involving multiple background checks, in-depth interviews, and three rounds of fingerprinting. 
The current administration has increased vetting and security screenings, especially for certain populations. This process alone can take up to two years to complete. After the vetting process is complete, the federal government would assign you to one of nine national level voluntary agencies. You may have heard of the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants, USCRI, or the International Rescue Committee. These are just two of nine national voluntary agencies, and they partner with other agencies across the nation to do the work of resettling refugees. So for example, stick with me here, <laughs> The U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants has over 30 partner agencies, one of which is located in Colchester, Vermont, known as the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program, or VRRP. You might be resettled in Vermont because you already have family members here, and anyone who is a refugee would go through the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program. Learning all this information, I was surprised that there didn't seem to be any involvement of individual state governments in helping to resettle refugees. So I asked Lena Colburn, who is a state representative in Vermont representing Burlington 6-4 District, what role the state did have in resettling refugees. No role. <laughs> it's that's a federal decision. So what state government can and should do better is um, the work of welcoming, supporting, recognizing uh, refugees, immigrants, asylum seekers when they're here. And there's a lot we could do there. It's good to get that cleared up. So the state government has absolutely no role in determining where refugees are placed. When refugees arrive in the U.S., they are greeted at the airport by Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program case managers who bring them to their new home and help them with the process of resettlement in the short term and long term. VRP has many basic trainings in language, U.S. culture, and employment to help refugees get on their feet. Learning about all of this, I was still confused about where the funding comes from to support refugees in their resettlement. So I asked Amila Michanovich, the director of VRP. So um, USCRI is, um, and VRP, we are private nonprofits. Uh, non-governmental. Um, the bulk of our funding, however, uh, does come from the federal government. This funding is not extensive, though, and the federal government's priority in resettling refugees is getting them employed and self-sufficient as soon as possible upon arrival. It is also important to note that VRP is not the only organization that helps refugees integrate into life in Vermont. There are many other nonprofits like the Association of Africans Living in Vermont, or AALV, and others that are not federally funded. 
Now, to me, this entire path to resettlement in the U.S., involving nine national voluntary agencies and hundreds of partner agencies, seems pretty convoluted. You know, like, why not just have one large federally funded agency that organizes resettlement efforts across the country? I found out that this actually has a lot to do with the history of refugee resettlement in the U.S. The source of much of the following information is from Pablo Bose's article, Refugee Capacity in Context a history of recent resettlement numbers in the U.S., which was published in 2018 as part of his research on refugee resettlement in small cities. World War II ended with hundreds of thousands of displaced Europeans. Seeing the need to take action, the U.S. government stepped up as a global player in resettlement. At the time, there was no formal refugee resettlement program, and many ethnic organizations and churches in the U.S. stepped up and organized to aid refugees in their resettlement process. At this time in Vermont, many refugees stayed with local host families for the first few months before they got their own jobs and apartments. Many of these churches and organizations later became today's U.S. resettlement agencies. After the U.S. withdrew from the Vietnam War in 1975, there were hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese, Cambodians, and other Southeast Asians in need of resettlement. The U.S. government realized that with the increase in displaced people, they would need to improve and formalize the refugee resettlement system in the U.S., so Congress passed the Refugee Act of 1980. The system that was created is called the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, USRAP, and it is a public-private partnership. So the federal government chooses and vets the refugees and private organizations help refugees transition into life in the U.S. once they arrive. The key thing to understand here, which I just recently fully got my head around, is under this system, the president of the United States, in consultation with Congress, sets the maximum number of refugees who will be accepted during each fiscal year and what countries they will be admitted from. Also, it's important to note that while there is a maximum number of refugees that will be admitted, oftentimes that number isn't even reached and there are no laws stating that the government has to reach those target maximum numbers. These details will come up again when we talk about what refugee resettlement looks like today under the Trump administration. When we look at refugee resettlement trends in the U.S., it is important to acknowledge that the number of refugees the U.S. is willing to resettle has increased and decreased over the years. So, you know, in the 1980s, you were trying to deal with all of the people who were leaving Vietnam. And the U.S. had a very clear sort of obligation to a lot of those folks. 
in the 1990s, you had these um, sort of massive displacements caused by the civil war in, in the Balkans and by um, things like the Rwandan genocide and and the attacks on Bosnians and later on Kosovars, things like that. And so you had these big groups of people who were displaced and um, being placed here. But, you know, the refugee resettlement has gone up and down. In After 9-11, the program was shut down and uh, it was suspended for a while. They instituted really extreme vetting measures. They, they went through and they did all sorts of security screenings. And so that year, the resettlement program admitted very few people, about 27,000, even though there was nearly 70,000 who'd been approved. As Bose argues in much of his literature, the federal government often chooses to resettle refugees based on what is strategic for foreign policy objectives rather than on humanitarian need. As Pablo mentioned, after 9-11, the refugee resettlement program was actually frozen for two months and new security measures were added to the process. This brings us to the present day. In 2017, the Obama administration planned to accept a ceiling of 110,000 refugees in response to the Syrian refugee crisis. But when the Trump administration took office, they cut that number in half, and the numbers for 2018 look even grimmer. In fact, for 2018, Trump approved the lowest number of refugees since the creation of the Refugee Resettlement Program in 1980. But now what we're in is a whole new situation. 45,000 refugees is what was the upper limit that was approved by this administration. And the reality is because of all kinds of new um, restrictions, travel bans, um, underfunding of all sorts of things, uh, not just restrictive screenings, but uh, lack of staffing in some of those positions means that we are highly unlikely to get even close to those numbers of 45,000. And that will have a profound effect on resettlement um, in the U.S. As a, as a mechanism. It'll have a profound impact on resettlement agencies. It'll have a huge impact on uh, refugee communities who will all of a sudden see their friends and relatives um, stop coming even though they've gone through this long process and it'll have a huge impact on many of these communities that really rely on these new people coming in. So Pablo, will this mean fewer refugees in Vermont this year and what kind of effect will this have on refugee resettlement process in Vermont? Oh, absolutely. It's already uh, affecting Vermont. So this year, the plan was that um, so the traditional or, or kind of regular resettlements that have been happening in Vermont have been about 300 to 350 people a year. Sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower, but roughly around that. This year, it was supposed to be um, 270 people coming to Burlington and 100 I believe 100 going to Rutland, which was also what was supposed to be last year. Last year, it ended up being 14 people because of all of the um, the bans and slowdowns and all the rest of it. And instead of 110,000 people across the country, it was 55,000 roughly. This year, no people have come to Rutland. And in fact, from what I understand, uh, the guidance 
from the federal government has been, if it looks like you're not going to come close to your numbers, then we're not going to continue with that site for this year. So I don't believe there's going to be any people coming to uh, Rutland. Um, and, and that was mainly meant to be Syrians. And I do not know what the numbers are going to look like for Burlington, but I am fairly um, sure it's going to be well, well less than 270. Um, I, I actually believe that because they closed down or they're, they're not sending people to Rutland, they officially agreed to send more people to Burlington again, so up around the 300 range, but I do not believe that we're going to meet those numbers. Nationally, since October, my understanding is that less than 5,000 people have been resettled. Um, the federal fiscal year starts in November, in October, rather. Now, this really doesn't sound good for people who want to resettle in Vermont, but the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program director still has a positive outlook. But the good thing, if there <laughs> is a good thing, also with a caveat, um, the administration has um, li listed a ban, a travel ban, on 11 SAO countries. Um, however, they um, announced that they will be implementing additional security uh, vetting, uh, you know, procedures. So um, we still don't know what that means and how that's going to affect uh, processing and arrivals. But we worry that um, it will uh, slow them down. Hearing about all of this, I couldn't help but feel a little depressed about the state of things. But so many of the people I interviewed gave me little glimmers of hope and showed me the silver lining and everything. I wondered how Selena Colburn felt working for the state government with so much disruption happening at the federal level. Yeah. So I have really struggled with this. Like I got elected to the state legislature for the first time the same night that Trump was elected president. Yeah, it was not a super fun victory party. And it's been, um, and I already knew from my city council experience that I wanted to be moving progressive policy and doing that work and so in some ways it's been like incredible to um, be in a relatively progressive state legislature relatively relative to other state legislatures not necessarily relative to where I think we should be but it's been like an amazing outlet to go to work and be in a judiciary committee that's um, passing a bill about how to the fullest extent of our power as a state, we're not gonna police people on immigration status. That has felt great. Um, so there's lots of small victories there, but I also worry that I 
like on a personal level, I worry that I am able to numb out to some of the absolute atrocity of what is happening in this country by being like, I'm working really hard to make things better in my small state, in my universe of what I can do. I go to work every day and I push for, um, you know, a resolution that's sitting in the House General Committee right now saying that Vermont should welcome refugees and that the United States should resettle more refugees, not less. Um, I, like, in some weird way, I worry that that is, numbs me out, too, or that it, like, is a form of putting my head in the sand. It's hard to explain, maybe, but... And then I would go home and I would read the news for the first time all day and I would sob, you know? And then I'd start the cycle again. And like, I don't cry every night when I read the news and anymore. And I should, you know? I don't know. It's just the shock and awe of it. And like, it is so great to have an outlet. And I think it's just a balancing act to make sure that outlet um, doesn't turn the volume down on what's happening. Thinking about how Trump's new restrictions on refugee resettlement might affect Vermont, I wanted to know more about how refugees themselves were feeling about it. I asked Amir, a former refugee from Bosnia, now a U.S. citizen, about it. We will hear more um, about his full story in the next episode. So, Amir, has your perspective on America changed at all with the current administration? Your question is my perspective on America. Uh, On Americans? No. They're the same people, just a different president and administration. Um, the feel changed. Uh, it changed to the feel that we had in 1990, 1991, and 1992, where people like our current president came and uh, were in charge and were uh, pushing for, you know, kind of a recognizing differences in people which for me there are none because we're all human beings you know do I care what color you are I don't care you're a human being with the current administration they're trying to divide us people and uh, spreading hate is very easy you can look at back at the history and people uh, losing their lives because of it. So, hate is easy, easy, and it's, you know, you know, easily spread, uh, very easy to do, uh, lazy, um, and to love someone 
to be happy, it takes work. Through the course of creating this podcast, I have heard lots of stories of compassion and caring in the broader Burlington area. I was talking about the effect of Trump's travel ban with Mary O'Dell, a former employment counselor at the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program. And she told me about a beautiful moment she witnessed. One story that comes to mind to me right away is um, in the midst of the first travel ban that was issued under this administration, I attended quite a few information sessions um, and at, at that first information session, um, the director of the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program explained to all the attendees that our local staff and staff at the headquarters level and other key stakeholders in resettlement were doing everything they could to advocate for refugees and to fight the ban. Um, and then in that room, one of my clients who I worked with pretty extensively before this um, and is an English language learner stood up and thanked the director and basically asked to speak about what she had just said. And this client explained that without being fluent in English or having the awareness of how politics and policy work here, um, refugees have no choice but to rely on people like us to be their advocates. And she said it in such an eloquent way and such a powerful way. It just put me in tears and so many other people in the room in tears. And it was just a really eye-opening moment to see someone that was highly educated and kind and just brilliant um, and have her explain, you know, what it's like to lose your independence and to have to put your trust in other people to fight for you. The people working on refugee resettlement in Vermont certainly feel a responsibility to find new homes for refugees, and they are motivated. The refugee resettlement program here in Vermont and nationally has been tremendously successful. We have brought hundreds of thousands of people over to this country um, who have rebuilt lives for themselves and who have contributed enormously to revitalization in the communities that they've gone to. And it is unfortunate that they have been subjected to attacks that are very often not based in reality. Um, but I would also say that for all of the um, sometimes really depressing kind of rhetoric that is um, that is evident at the national level and sometimes at the state level, not necessarily here, but certainly nationally, um, going to the actual places that people have settled is incredibly inspiring. It's inspiring to see how people have rebuilt lives and built new ones. And it is incredibly inspiring to see the ways in which local communities have supported them. So that in all of this is what continues to give me hope is that these have been really successful um, initiatives that move past fear mongering and people who really work to build better communities um, from both sides. And that, that to me has been very inspiring.
On the next episode, we will delve into how the Vermont community is supporting refugees on the ground. We will talk to local refugee resettlement agencies and refugees themselves to hear how the process of initial resettlement has been for them. Thank you for listening today, and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. Don't forget to like, share, or comment on this episode. I always appreciate your feedback. This podcast was created and produced by your host, Tilden Riemerleach. The intro music for the show was created and produced by Edward James. The production of this show received funding from the University of Vermont's College of Arts and Sciences Apple Award and the Four Mini Grant. Other music featured in this episode includes About Last Night and Gone by Audio Binger, Paper Boat by Puddington Bear, Falling Down by Ryan Little, and Enthusiast by Tours. No.